In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Ryan Chenke about securing single page applications. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 98. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, as always, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Ryan Chenke. How's it going, Ryan? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Really good. So uh, for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind just kind of briefly introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you do? Sure thing. So I am a full stack developer. Um, I work mainly with JavaScript, so I'm doing a lot of Angular, a um, little bit of Vue.js, and a lot of Node.js. And I am a consultant. So that means I basically go into companies, uh, figure out what their business challenges are, and build applications for them. Uh, that's that's mainly what I do, but I also do some architecture stuff for various companies. Um, and then I build courses too. So I'm uh, a workshop instructor and a course deliverer. Um, I teach a, a few places. Um, uh, Front End Masters is one of the places I teach. I also do some books and that kind of thing. So lots of uh, lots of code for me, lots of JavaScript in particular. Cool, man. Yeah. So um, I think we first met at the Craft and Commerce Conference in Boise, Idaho a couple years ago or last year or something like that. And I know at the time you were working on um, a book that I guess you you put out. When did you release your book? Earlier this year? Yeah, that was in June, middle of June this year. Cool. Yeah. So the book was Securing Angular Applications. And lately I've been sort of uh, dipping my toes into the client-side app water a little bit more uh, because traditionally i've usually just built stuff server rendered html with some javascript enhancements kind of sprinkled on the front end after the fact but sort of been interested in getting my toes wet with building full-on like single page apps Uh, so i've been trying to talk to some people about kind of different aspects of that and learn everything i need to know to be able to do the best job i can with it and i thought it would be awesome to have you on the show to talk about you know, securing single page apps, basically, how do you do authentication? What sort of things do you have to worry about with, uh, you know, cross site scripting, that sort of stuff, and how that stuff differs maybe from how you would do it with a, uh, a server rendered application. So I don't know, I was thinking maybe the best place to start would just be to talk about some of the different authentication strategies, because it sounds like there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Everyone seems to have their own uh, preference. And I'm not really sure what the kind of the pros and cons are of all the different options. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about how you like to do uh, authentication uh, with single page apps? Sure, that sounds good. So, you know, when it comes to building single page apps, uh, regardless of the framework or library <coughs> or set of libraries that you're using, you've got to kind of make some decisions architecturally uh, of how you're going to set things up. So very common with a single page app is you build out the single page application uh, as kind of a standalone app. And then you've got, if, if you need a backend, which you likely do, you're going to build a backend that uh, is served up through a REST API. And then you're going to make calls from your single page app to that REST API. And so you've got two kind of separate applications in that sense. And I mean, that's not the only way to do it. Uh, you know, sometimes it's more of the sprinkling approach, uh, which it sounds like you've got some experience in. Um, but when you, regardless of how you do it, you've got to be able to, to, to properly authenticate your single page application. You've got to be able to, uh, prove that the user who is making a request to the API through your single page app, 
um, is allowed to get at the resources they're trying to get at. And mm. if there's access control considerations in place, you've also got to be able to tell that they have access to what they're trying to get access to. So those are kind of two big considerations, authentication and authorization. Does the Is the user who they say they claim is the user who they claim to be and do they have access to the things that uh, they're trying to get access to um so there's some there's various approaches that you can take to uh to be able to tell your api if the user is who they claim to be etc and one of them that you're probably familiar with working with round trip applications is the traditional cookie and session approach yeah so you authenticate so you put in your username and password um, if everything's good you get a cookie sent back to the browser and then you've got a session stored on the server and those two line up right there's an identifier there yeah. to be able to line those two up so then any further any subsequent move through the application that the user makes that cookie is automatically going to go to the server just by virtue of how browsers work and if everything lines up with a session if a session is found then they can be considered authenticated mm -hmm. you know hopefully your logic is set up so that you can you can uh, make that proof so you can use that approach with single page applications um, you know there's there's nothing stopping you from using cookies and sessions together um, but one of the approaches that's a little bit more popular with single page apps is to use something like JSON web tokens. Okay. And so <clears throat> JSON web token, for those who are unfamiliar, it's, uh, it's kind of this long string of characters. It's broken out into three parts. It's got a couple, um, separators, these dot separators in between and, um, Everything together, uh, those parts of the token, um, give it give it a little bit of security inherently, but also allow it to be able to hold information. And one of the pieces of the JSON web token is the payload of it. And the payload is this basically this JSON object that's got some information. It's got some things that would be standard uh, based on the JSON web token spec, um, but it also can hold arbitrary information. So it can hold like your user ID, your user email, any kind of information that you want about the user and those are called claims in the json web token spec and so it turns out if you use json web tokens for authentication you've got this way of being able to authenticate requests at your api without the need to check a session and mm -hmm. so you can create more of a stateless api yeah so those are those are two common approaches and each of them has its set of trade-offs um but i think more and more these days we're seeing uh things like json web tokens uh kind of take over in the way that you would do auth between a single page app and an api got it so i uh, maybe it makes sense to talk a little bit about um the cookie and session approach in an spa and sure. sort of what is involved there versus doing it in a server side app so one of the first questions that comes to mind for me is like a lot of the time you might be serving the api from like a different subdomain or something than like the actual app like maybe it's like api.myapp.com is where you're making all your requests to but the actual app lives at like app.myapp.com or something right. like that. And, you know, with like a traditional server rendered app, everything's kind of in one place. So, you know, the cookie belongs to that same domain and everything kind of goes smoothly and kind of works easily. But I got to imagine that things are a little bit more complicated when you're trying to basically get the browser to send a cookie along for that those API requests to the API. So, like, how's that actually working? Is it like... You're going to have a login form that's built on the client side and a client side rendered login form, put in your username, password, 
that makes an AJAX request to the API. The API sends back a response with a cookie attached and the browser just, does it automatically keep track of cookies that are, you know, being generated due to cross domain requests and stuff as well? Um, yeah, so cross domain um, scenarios, those are definitely trickier to work with when it comes to cookies and sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the <clears throat> sort of the automatic flow that you'll get if you want to use cookies and sessions is it the it would happen automatically for you if you were serving from the same domain. So if yeah. you maybe pro- proxied your API to the same domain that your front end is being served from, uh, or you just had it, you know, it, maybe it's in the same project and you're you're just like making record. It's it's served by the same server. That that's the easy case. Um, if you're serving cross domain, there's a bunch of concessions that would need to be made for having that cross co- cross domain cookie flow. Um, and it's not it's not trivial. Like it, there's there's some um, challenges there that you have to get over. And um, I t- I tend to use JSON Web Tokens pretty much exclusively for my single page app. So I haven't had to deal with personally that whole cross domain cookie flow thing. Yeah. Um, but from what I hear, it's it's not fun. Like it's it's definitely got its uh, its challenges. Gotcha. Okay. So um, maybe let's talk a little bit about like the JSON Web Token approach then. Um, Because it sounds like that is um, preferable. And I mean, there's other approaches, too, that I've seen people take that maybe maybe we can talk about, too, and how they differentiate from from a JWT. But so my understanding of a JWT is kind of like you talked about, right? There's three parts to it. Um, It kind of reminds me of like how you might store like a password hash in a database or something. There's like some information telling you like what algorithm was used and stuff like that. Then there's like the actual payload, which is the data that you're sending to the server to sort of tell the server, this is who I am. Um, this is what permissions I have, stuff like that. Um, and then there's like a signature, which as I understand it is like generated by the server before the JWT is issued back to the user. And the server can kind of verify that signature to make sure that no one just like created their own JWT and gave themselves whatever permissions uh, they want is that kind of the the right way to think about how it works? Yeah, for the most part. Um, one thing that's that's kind of important to I guess to clarify when it comes to comparing a JWT to a hashed password is that with a JWT you can fully like and and readily very easily decode the token and mm-hmm. you can see what's in it. So let's say you had like a savvy user. Let's say that somebody is using your application and they happen to be a developer and they go into dev tools and they find their token. They can just copy it and paste it into uh, a JWT decoder and they can see what's in the payload very easily. Sure. Um, with a hash password, that isn't the case, right? Yeah. They can't be worked backwards. Um, so, so there's an algorithm at play in both cases, but in one case, we're simply... Um, encoding some information into a token uh there 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 is a hashing process that takes place in the signature yeah but it's important to remember that most of the token is fully readable um so the secret part that you're talking about yeah so one of the most common ways probably the the easiest way to uh, to work things is that um let's say you have your server where you've got uh, a connection to a database that has a user store and you want to authenticate users and then sign a token for them your your server would have a secret maybe um, in like a parameter store or somewhere in some safe place that you can call on it at runtime. Mm-hmm. And you would use that secret 
to uh, to calculate the signature. And the signature is actually based on all the parts of the token. So you've got a header, you've got a payload, and then you've got the signature part. The header and the payload are taken together with the signature to come up with like, uh, with the secret key, I should say, to come up with a signature spot. And what that does is it um, it means the token's integrity can be maintained. And I talked a bit about how um, JWTs have some inherent security. That's that's what I refer to there is like this um, ability to make sure that your token can't be tampered with. So if somebody, if you're a developer um, guy who's using the application, if he decodes the token, he can see the information, but he can't change it. Uh, yeah, so or he, else he couldn't change his token. like user ID to another one because he has no exactly. way of recreating that signature because he doesn't know the secret. Exactly. And so as long as your secret is long and complex and not easily guessable, then you, uh, you're you pretty much guaranteed that the, the token is safe. However, one thing to keep in mind is, again, going back to passwords and, and hashing, one of the benefits of using like Bcrypt or Argon2 is, the, is how slow they are, right? So users can't easily brute force you because there's computationally it's expensive to, yeah. to do those operations over and over not so much the case with json web tokens if you had a token be lifted from your site somehow and somebody wants to try to get what the work backwards to see what the signature was they yeah. can run many 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 more computations on it uh, much quicker yeah and, and crack that's it an interesting easily. point actually and something I, I was thinking about so so what hashing algorithm is like most commonly used for json web token signatures Pretty much like out of the box, you'll see uh, SHA-256. Okay. Um, that's that's kind of the most common one. Um, so you've got, and and there's two there's two common approaches for hashing. You've got your symmetric variety and then your asymmetric variety. So asymmetric being kind of in the same way that we do like SSH keys with mm-hmm. like a public-private key pair. Um, you, can, you can use that approach too. And if you use some of these services like Auth0, for example, the the hashing algorithm that they're going to give you out of the box is RSA, um, so it's this asymmetric way of signing tokens, and the verification step at this point, instead of being um, a shared secret, um, kind of the secret key that you sign the token with, and then you need to use to verify the signature afterwards, it's instead going to be a, a public, kind of a public private key pair type approach, um, and so that's that's the more secure way to do it. It's uh, it's it's easier to kind of rest assured that your your token isn't going to be brute forced in the same way that you might do if it's just like a you know a secret key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess like the thing that was interesting to me about that is when you think about the sort of hashing algorithms that we use for passwords that are meant to be intentionally slow to avoid brute forcing. If you were to try and use that in like a JWT context, that would have like a serious performance penalty on your application, right? Because if you actually pay attention to what happens when you go to log into a regular app that's doing like a bcrypt check or something, that request is actually quite a lot slower than every other request because the mm-hmm. password hashing is meant to be like, you know, 200 milliseconds or something. That's right. So that it's really hard to brute force. If you had to um, use an algorithm like that to verify the signature of the JWT on every single API request that happens from your SPA because it's done in this stateless way, then every single request would be slowed down by 200 milliseconds, right? So yeah, you want your verification step to be fast for sure. Because if um, if it's not, then you're kind of negating some of the benefits that come along with JSON Web Tokens. Some of the benefits being that since your requests are now stateless, um, basically, so what I mean by that is 
again, getting back to there being a session in the previous way that we did things with cookies and sessions, yeah. instead of a session existing, now, instead of asking the, the back end what the user can get access to, we're telling the back end what the user has access yeah. to. And so there's no state being stored to do any verification. Basically, the token goes to the API and it is the source of truth. Um, so if you slow that process down, then the benefit of being stateless and the speed gains that can come with that are kind of out the window. So um, something that I've I've wondered is what are some of the best practices around like expiring JSON web tokens or say you um, wanted to you know, basically invalidate all existing JSON web tokens because you thought maybe your account was compromised in some way or something. If all that information is like coming from the client and the server is just verifying that the signature was correct, what sort of strategies can you put in place to make sure that if someone decides, hey, any JSON web token issued before this date or whatever is no longer uh, valid, how can you sort of enforce that or what sort of approaches can you use there? Right. And so one thing I should mention is that there's this whole argument, there's there's a whole camp of developers who kind of say that JSON web tokens in the way that we're typically using them for single page app to API, um, that it shouldn't be done. It's not a good approach. Um, and a lot of the reason for that argument comes down to the fact that if we want to have full control over the user's authentication um, session, I'm, I'm doing session in air quotes yeah, because yeah. it's not really a, a session. If we wanted, if we want to do those kinds of things that we typically typically can do with cookies and sessions, really we're just reinventing the wheel when it comes to JSON web tokens because there's a and there's a lot of work that we have to do um, that hasn't been proven out as much as it has been with cookies and sessions. Sure. So a lot of people say. Forget JSON Web Tokens. It's not worth it. There's too much work to do, uh, which is a fair argument. Um, but kind of more to the point, if you want to do some of these things, like you want to be able to say say you've got an application for a business and an employee um, gets super mad and storms out and leaves and you're worried that they're going to um, you know delete some data or something. So you want to revoke their access, any current logins that they might have, meaning any JSON Web Tokens that may have been issued to them that are still valid. The only real way to do that is to beforehand have some kind of blacklist blacklisting technique set up. Um, and so what that comes down to is if you want to blacklist your tokens, you've got to have an identifier for them. And there's a standard claim that can go into the token called a JTI, which is JSON Web Token Identifier. Mm -hmm. And that can, so you generate an ID and now you've got to keep a list of the token IDs that you have issued. Mm -hmm. um, so, so now presumably, you, have, you sort of do have some state on the server around. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And, that, and so that, that goes back to like reinventing the wheel. And so... You can do that. That's a common technique. You you black you have a, a blacklist, and if you say, okay, that person's token, I know it's been issued, I know it's still uh, valid, it, meaning it's not expired yet. Let's revoke it. You you basically blacklist that ID, and now any requests that are attempted with that token can't proceed. <clears throat> um, a technique to be cautious, I guess, is to keep your expiry window really small, kind of as small as is practicable um because you want it's this trade-off right you you want your um your front-end experience your user experience to be good meaning you don't want your users to have to get a new token every five minutes yeah. but at the same time you don't want to have a long expiry window in your token because unless you have those concessions made 
once a token is out, it's out and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, the only thing you can really do, so here's here's some options. You can change the secret key that was used to sign the token. You can rotate your key. But now every other user that's logged into your application yeah, gets logged out too. on the next request. They're screwed too. Um, so you can you can blacklist, like I mentioned. Um, one pattern that I've seen be talked about, I haven't actually tried it myself, is this idea of the user epoch, um, which is basically a timestamp um, that you would create for your user as a claim in the token. And then if you decide a user no longer has access, you, you can set a piece of information for that user saying that by this time, the user shouldn't be able to use that token. And so if the value for the timestamp in the token um, is, uh, is before the user epoch, as it were, they, they will be denied. But again, that's getting back to like a database call at that point, right? Negating some of this stateless, sure. um, stateless stuff that we're, we're hoping for. So there's all sorts of trade-offs here. There's, you know, there's no really good answers for, uh, yeah, for all this stuff. It sounds like there's maybe not a lot of like agreed upon one true way to do things, but there are some different, approaches you could take kind of depending on mm -hmm. what matters most to you or what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a set of trade-offs that you got to consider, you know, if you're building like a financial application for a bank or something, mm -hmm. you definitely want your token expiries to be really small, like for sure. five minutes yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that. But of course you don't want your users to have to log in every five minutes. So what you can do in that scenario is you can set up token refreshing. Um, but that done properly token refreshing done properly requires basically some session on the server that says this user still has a valid session so if they want to make a call if they want to be issued a new token without having to actually put in their username and password yeah okay we can do that uh if they don't have a valid session then they have to actually go and fully authenticate again so then it's back to okay well now there's some there's some state on the server there's there's a session happening so like it seems like every direction you go there's there are some walls that will be hit um so you kind of have to evaluate what's you know what's what's most important you know some of the things that cookies don't do well is they don't flow downstream well so if you've got maybe you're broken into microservices and you've got different services mm -hmm. being served from different places or you need to make a call elsewhere from your server, cookies aren't going to be useful in that regard, right? They're not going to flow to other places. Sure. But a JSON web token can do that. You can, yeah. you can send it elsewhere. Now, architecturally, um, security-wise, whether or not that's a good idea has to be evaluated for your you know, specific project. You've got to make a determination of whether you should be sending cookies to other, or uh, JSON web tokens to other places. But the possibility is there. Yeah. Um, so that's where JSON web tokens can come in handy. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest 
resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So if you're building um, a client-side app that has like an API, uh, but you also wanted to like reuse that API um, for for other stuff, like where, you know, the SPA is just like one client of it. Someone else might be using it in a totally different context or something. Um, do you still think JSON web tokens are like a good authentication mechanism to just use like across the board for all clients? Or do you usually just use JSON web tokens for the SPA client and some other authentication mechanism for, for other clients or you know, what sort of stuff have you done there and what are kind of your thoughts around that? Um, I have only ever done one or the other. So I haven't found a good reason to mix the two before. Um, so regardless of how many clients you might have connecting to your API, it's been, for me, it's either been just like JSON web token or cookies and sessions. Um, I think, you know, there's arguments either way, which is which is the better case. But um, I've, you know, one thing I've found is that working with JWTs tends to be easier once you understand them and and know how to work with them. It tends to just make for a nicer developer experience. Um, now, whether or not that's best for user experience is another story. But the uh, the argument can be made that they're they're a good. Uh, it's a good mechanism if you want to kind of move quickly. Once you understand it and you want to move quickly, it can be a good mechanism because mm -hmm. then you're not dealing with weird server state things that you have to debug between like, okay, you know, my client A application makes this request and if client B makes this request and then there's sessions set up um, for this user or that user, I've got to debug things. It, it can be a little bit tricky to do that. So JWTs tend to work nicer that way. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, it's like one or the other for me, basically. Do you ever do any stuff with like 
a more traditional like API token, you know what I mean? Where a server is just generating some long token, sending it back to you to store that you pass along as like an uh, authorization bearer token sort of header. Yeah. And so that's, that's a, a fair approach too. I, I generally don't use that approach. And, and one of the reasons that I don't is because um, very often when I'm building an application for a client, it's it's a third-party authentication service that I'm using. Um, and uh, quite often, just by virtue of me me uh, working there in the past, I use Auth0. Um, so I'll use Auth0 in my client applications. And Auth0, when you do authentication with them, they're going to give you back a JSON web token. Um, and that's that's really because Auth0 is like an OAuth provider um, with OIDC as part mm-hmm. of it. And OIDC um, standardized on JSON web tokens. They'll give you a JSON web token as part of your authentication. Um, and it just happens to work well if you want to be a, a third-party auth provider because then you don't have to worry about having a session stored for every of your tenants um well they do store a session but you don't have to if you want to have your users your tenants be able to do auth between their own front end and their own api you don't have to worry about managing sessions on their api Uh, instead you give them a token and you say this is a stateless way now that you can just perform those authentication steps um, so anyway, the, I use things like Auth0 very often, and so they're just going to give me a JSON web token, so that's what I use. But if you wanted to use like a bearer token, um, that's uh, reasonable too. You might get a, a, a few more, I guess, security uh, legs up security-wise with JSON web tokens. That's maybe debatable. That, that could be arguable. Um, but that's what I use. And it, it works in a similar way. You would send your token, like your bear token, in an authorization header in your AJAX request. Same thing with JSON Web Tokens. You attach it as a as that header. Okay. So um, something that might be interesting to get into, actually, is you brought up Auth0, uh, which is just like another sort of approach in general to doing authentication with like a, a client-side application, just figuring out how to basically outsource that to a third party. Now I've never actually worked with auth zero or any of the other tools out there, you know, that are kind of designed to do that sort of thing. So I'd be curious to learn more about, uh, what that actually looks like to, to work with. So, so if you're building a a single page app and you're using a service like auth zero to authenticate, what does that look like from, uh, the user's perspective? First of all, Right. So uh, when you say user, do you mean like, the like developer or the, the user actually user? using your app? Like, do they, right. do they, can they see that like they're being kicked somewhere else to log in against Auth0? Or, you know, does it, is there like a library from Auth0 that you pull into your app that you use to do things behind the scenes? Or um, right. just what does that whole story look like? So there's both. Um, Auth0 will default you to what they call universal authentication. And what that looks like is when you integrate some library code that comes from Auth0, say say it's a Vue.js application, and you get Auth0's JavaScript library um, called, uh, it's called Auth0.js, and you you call the login method, for example, it's going to kick you over to an Auth0 domain. It'll be uh, your tenant.auth0.com yep. where the user is going to have a login form. So that's that's by default is their universal login setup. Um, and that's that's kind of the safest approach because it's there. There are some concessions that need to be made, some considerations when you're when you're performing cross domain authentication. So when you're 
in one domain, your, your own application, and then you're saying, I'm going to ver I'm going to authenticate my users at another domain completely. That's That's got some security challenges that need to be considered. So you head over to Auth0's domain, you authenticate there, and then you get redirected back to your own application with the tokens that have been issued for you. Um, and that's all. that all follows like a, a standard OAuth flow. Now, so when you, when you say you, tokens yep. in the plural, what are the, why are there multiple tokens? Right. So with uh, OAuth and OIDC, there are two tokens that we consider. One is the access token and one is the ID token. Um, so where's the, the JSON web token fall come so in? So with Auth0, uh, if you have your setup done in certain ways, they're both JSON web tokens. Um, okay. So the ID token, this is an OIDC thing, OpenID Connect. Um, this is going to have information about the user. And so an ID token is kind of just this, this, I guess, string. It's a JSON web token, so it's a string that's got some information that you consume in your front-end application once you get it, and then you can kind of just forget about. You just It, it identifies who the user is. Um, what you want to do to get access to resources, if you're making an AJAX call for your, to get through to your database, you want to send the access token that you've been issued. That's, that's the token that's meant for API access. Um, so you get two tokens back. You want to store them uh, somehow. And this is another point of debate, actually, with JSON Web Tokens that's worth mentioning. It's like, where do you, where do you keep your tokens once they come back to you? Um, many of these services and many people, common practice is to store them in local storage. Mm -hmm. That is uh, debated as to whether or not that's a good practice because now you're open to cross-site scripting attacks. Um, if somebody gets some malicious code on your page, they can just scan your local storage and send those tokens to wherever. Sure. Now they've got tokens they can just call your API with, right? Yep. So that's a problem. Um, the other option is to store them in a cookie. So cookies are not susceptible. Now, if done right, cookies are not susceptible to uh, the same cross-site scripting attacks. But now there's a flip side. Now you're susceptible to cross-site request forgeries, CSRF attacks. So there's 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 downsides to both. Um, a common practice that I'm seeing a lot more these days is to not store them anywhere client side at all. Uh, instead, you just keep them in memory. So the tokens come back and you you keep them in memory. But then the question is, okay, well, what if the user refreshes their page or they close their browser, they come back to your app? Yeah, later. now they've lost a token. Now they've lost a token. So what you can do, uh, if you have token refreshing set up, which you get with Auth0, you're going to get this session stored on Auth0 that's going to allow you to refresh your tokens without having to go through all of the authentication steps. I guess the logic goes, anytime the app gets loaded, you make a call to Auth0 to see if the session is active. And if it is, you get some tokens, keep those in memory, and just use them throughout the, the current browser session. If it gets closed and open back up, same thing on an app load. You make a call to Auth0 and you go from there. So those, you know, that that's arguably a bit safer, especially if you're using a framework that's like sandboxed in the browser where malicious code is going to have a hard time getting into uh, places that it shouldn't be. That's, um, you know, that, that can be beneficial that way. So um, I think what was what were we talking about initially there? Auth0 in general. It's yeah. like do you do you get a domain or do you get do you have to go to Auth0? You get kicked over to Auth0 by default, um, but you can set up your own custom domain through a C name. So it'd be like login.whatever.com. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other approach is you can you can use uh, Auth0's um, 
use their Auth0 JS library to create your own login form in your application, or you can use their own login widgets in your own application, but then you're dealing with like cross domain authentication, which is a Got bit it. tricky. Yeah. So then what about on like the server? So if you're, if you built like a rails API or something for your, um, client side app and you're making a request to access some resource and you're passing along this JSON web token, which is your access token, um, that was issued to you by auth zero. What does the API have to do now to verify that? Do you have to make like an API call to auth zero as part of every single API request to look at a resource or. So it is a call to auth zero, but it's not the same kind of API call that you might do if you're, you know, using like a management API or something like that. Instead, you just need to make a call to a place where you can get the public key that lines up with that token. Um, and where that is at is like your tenant.auth0.com slash dot well-known. I'm not sure if you've seen those well-known. Yeah, I actually I saw that just the other day because of something related to the new iOS update or something. Okay. Um, yeah, I may have seen that too, actually. I, that rings a bell. Um, but yeah. it's at slash well-known. I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure about the history of well-known. It, yeah. I think it goes back a number of years, but um and then you, you go to a, a specific uh, place there after slash well-known and you'll get the public key for your tenant. And if everything lines up with that, then you're good to go. Um, so now do, you, to prevent- do you do that check on your own server then? Like you're yes. you're checking the validity of the JSON web token with when like an auth zero Ruby library or something on your server. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so thinking in node terms, because that's where I operate most, that's sure. like that becomes a middleware, probably a similar concept in Ruby. Uh-huh. Um, you have a middleware that's going to say, okay, as a request comes in, check the token validity. Um, if you can verify it, if, verify it. If the signature is good, if it's not expired, then let the request pass through to the endpoint. Um, and that verification step uh, is going to happen in that middleware, presumably. Now, one of the things that Auth0 helps with is a lot of these libraries that you put on your server will cache the public key for a, a sure. period of time yeah. so that you're not making a re- an external request every single time. Yeah, got yeah. it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was always kind of curious how that worked because it sounded like it could introduce a lot of extra latency if it wasn't done right. right. So it sounds like Auth0 is... They're responsible for the issuing and sort of management of that stuff. Like, am I correct in thinking like doing something like expiring a token or something? You could do that from like an Auth0 dashboard or something like that. If well, you can't you you can't expire a token after it's issued because it's going to mm-hmm. have an expiry date. Um, but if sure. we're thinking about like blacklisting, um, you kind of need to build that in yourself. There's ways that Auth0 helps you with that, but there's still some work that you've got to do. Okay. So just by virtue of how JSON web tokens work, you can't just say, "Oh, let's pull up a user and let's nullify their the tokens they've got." Sure. It doesn't work quite so easily. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So. Um, what is your kind of like preferred approach in, in general then? Like if you were building something, uh, for yourself, would you lean towards doing like the JWT implementation sort of on your own or do you tend to just reach for a service like Auth0? So I tend to reach for something like Auth0. That's my preference. And really it's just, it comes down to like, um, time spent on features that I don't really care to build. Um, they, they're just, they're super fast. Like you, you can get up and running with authentication super, super quickly. Um, you don't have to spend time building your user store because they have a, they, they keep users for you. 
um, or the the logic around issuing tokens and and that sort of thing. It's all it's all done for you basically. And you know that's just that's basically a part of my application that I don't want to think about. I just want to plug in and go. Um, so they become very valuable in that way. And there's a bunch of other companies that do it too. So you've got companies like Okta. Um, uh, you've got uh, you know there's some uh, some other ones like Janrain I think is another one. Um, so there, there's various companies that that act as this third party authentication provider. Mm-hmm. So far, and, and I mean I'm biased because I used to work there, but so far it's it's the best service that I've found uh, to do the job. Um, the most developer friendly, most developer centric. So I'd highly yeah. recommend them if uh, if you're looking to do that. Um, but yeah, rolling my own authentication just not something I'm typically thinking about much anymore. Cool. Um, so maybe the, the last topic to get into would be something we touched on briefly, which was like the CSRF and XSS sort of challenges and kind of dealing with that stuff. So typically uh, for the stuff that I work on that's server rendered, if I have like a form on a page that I want to make sure I'm uh, sending along a CSRF token, you know, we would just do something like render a hidden input in the form with a CSRF token that was generated on the server as part of that request um so with something like a client-side app where you know the server which is what needs to validate the csrf token is not actually responsible for rendering the form what does it look like to get like a csrf token and include it with a request back to an api or something to make sure that uh, the request is being made you know from a trusted source right yeah well i mean a csrf um uh, token really is just like a, a header that comes back, right? Mm-hmm. When you've made a request um, and it can be stored in a cookie. And then so it's just a matter of storing it securely and then sending it back to your API on subsequent requests. So thinking in Angular land, because that's where I yep. work in mostly, um, they, there are parts, of, they've got some things built into the framework that will wire up those pieces for you. Mm-hmm. So you just have to set some config. You say, this is what my CSRF token uh, is called. Like this is the, the name for it. And um, then there's another, there's another parameter, I forget what it is off the top of my head, but you just set those config values and it's going to automatically, like presuming you've got a CSRF token stored after you've authenticated, it's yeah. just going to pull that and include it as a header on outgoing HTTP requests. So where and do you get it from you... initially? Like, um, hmm. are you making a separate request to kind of say, oh, I need a CSRF token or are you sending it back as part of the response when you do your initial authentication or... Right. Yeah. And so it depends on the kind of environment you're in and and the library you're using. But with Node, I believe like the most popular way to do it is you'll get it once you authenticate, you'll store it there. And then I want to say you get something back on other subsequent requests, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But but it comes it comes when you authenticate, it's stored and then it gets sent um, uh, down the line later on. But I want to say that you're it might be like refreshing every now and then I, I think that's it sounds familiar to me that it does that so that that might be the case cool um so what about cross-site scripting stuff like what sort mm. of uh considerations do you have to take into account there when you're working on a single page job yeah so um you've got to be i guess diligent really is is what it comes down to that you're not opening the door to have third-party code, especially potentially malicious third-party code, um, get on your page. Um, and so unfortunately we're in this world now where that's 
more and more a possibility. And one of the the ways that that's a possibility, which we might not think about that much, is through libraries that we use. So mm-hmm. stuff from NPM. Um, how do we know that the stuff we're installing as a node module, for example, how do we know that it doesn't have malicious code in it? Um, there is this article, I'm not sure if you saw this, Adam, this article about, uh, I think the title was something like, I've been stealing all your users' yeah, yeah. credit cards. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. it was a Medium post like earlier yeah. this year, or maybe end of last year. It was pretty friggin' scary, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. It, it was quite eye-opening because you never really think that you would have potentially malicious code, especially installed through like a node module. But the truth is like, whatever's on GitHub is n- not necessarily what's on npm yeah right? it's very opaque right like this mm. npm you publish code to they store it on their servers like and a lot of the time it's intentionally different than what's on github like you put the source on mm. github but you might put like the transpiled code on npm that might be get ignored from the actual repo or something exactly 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 so users don't get to see like developers don't get to see the code that's on npm that's getting installed in your node modules so you can cruise through your node modules and try to make sure you've got no malicious code but that sucks i wouldn't want to do that yeah um so what do you do i mean you can use like when when we're thinking about node modules in particular stuff that comes from npm you can use services that help to ver there there's there, there are companies out there that will do like security audits on node modules to make sure that they're doing what they say to be doing and nothing else um but it probably doesn't cover every single module that you're using. Uh, it's probably a good start, though. It's probably a good thing to use. Uh, then, aside from that, you want to make sure that you don't have anywhere on in your application where users can submit something that goes unsanitized and maybe gets stored in a database for other users to call upon later. Because that's typically how cross-site scripting attacks are done, right? Like, if you've got an input form, a user can enter, like, a script... If it gets stored in your database and then later retrieved from another user, it can be executed without the user Mm -hmm. really knowing even. Um, A lot of libraries, definitely Angular, I assume Vue, I haven't really seen this, but uh, I assume it does this. They will basically sanitize um, things like things that look like scripts they'll sanitize them for you and you don't have to worry about it as much but of course you still want to be mindful of it but yet yeah like angular won't execute um something that looks like a script automatically you have to you as the developer have to um kind of opt into it you've got to say that's what you want to do Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So there are two major problems with relying on your users to submit bug reports to you when they find something broken in your app. Number one, you can't discover all bugs this way. And number two, some users don't even bother submitting bug reports. They just wait for you to fix it, and if you don't, they just leave the service. Now, the best software teams practice proactive error monitoring, which means you detect all the errors in your production apps and services in real time, and then you can debug important errors in minutes or hours, often before your users even notice. Uh, teams from big companies you might have heard of, like Twilio, CircleCI, Instacart, they use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all your errors so you know exactly what's broken in production, and Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug those errors so you don't have to waste time sifting through logs. Debugging errors with Rollbar is crazy fast. You get the exact stack trace linked directly into your code base, the request 
request parameters to easily reproduce the issue yourself, a data on which user is affected so you know if it's the same user repeating the same error again, what browser and operating system, basically everything you need all in one place. They also have this awesome telemetry feature that's kind of like getting a black box recorder after a crash but for errors. It shows you all the browser events leading up to that error. Uh, so if you aren't using Rollbar already, there's a special offer just for Full Stack Radio listeners. Head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio and you'll be able to sign up for their bootstrap plan for three months for free, uh, which would normally be 147 bucks. So you save a bunch of money and get to really test out the service. So thanks a ton to Rollbar for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. Back to the show. What do you know about stuff like content security policy and stuff like that? Right. And so, so CSP, um, are you, are you thinking more of like, um, are you thinking CSP or are you thinking like cores, like cross? Yeah. Yeah. And- CSP. So it's actually just something that I don't have, um, a lot of experience with cause I haven't really you know, worked on anything really serious with lots of, um, you know, user facing stuff because of just the nature of my career history. So, um, right. I don't know. I'd be curious to know like what what you know about it and what you need to to do with that stuff if it's relevant to sort of the conversation we've been having so far. Yeah, I haven't touched on it tons in my career, but you know, one place you see that I know is if you're making like um a Chrome browser extension for example. Yeah. Um there there are things that Chrome will allow you to do as a developer and things that it won't allow you to do. And it, it often comes down to like a CSP policy. It's like, um, what, it, what is accessible through, uh, exe- executable code and what, what isn't. And there's a ton of things if you're building something that is, um, executed directly, um, you know, in the underlying browser that you shouldn't be able to get access to, right? Like the browser's got access to things like you can save things to the file system, but you don't want to expose that to a developer making a Chrome extension. So I haven't seen, like, I haven't needed to fiddle with CSP a ton. Um, You know, one thing that's possibly related is like uh, going across origins when you want to uh, expose certain origins to certain clients. And so there you would use like cross-origin resource sharing, right? Yeah. Um, you would use like cores for that. Um, but though, yeah, that's that's my bit of experience with it. Cool. Yeah, kind of on the note of cores, something I was um, kind of looking into recently when I was trying to kind of better understand how people set these sorts of projects up uh, that I didn't, that I, I guess makes sense, but I never really thought of was that um, if you're using like cores to make it possible for your single page app to communicate with your API because you have it on a different domain or something. Um, first of all, cores is a pain in the ass to set up and you yep. know, a nightmare, but, um, what I didn't consider and turns out this is totally the case is that because you have to make that pre-flight request to basically check if you're allowed to make some post request to this other domain or whatever, you're like doubling the number of requests that you have to send with your API all the time. And even though it might be fast to get that options request back um, because, you know, your server isn't doing a whole lot of work to generate it or whatever, um, it can still be like 100 milliseconds if you're distant from like where the actual server is or something. So you could yep. be adding like 100 milliseconds of latency to every, um, you know, non-simple request that actually requires cores which seems kind of crazy to me so i was kind of looking into what sort of solutions people put in place to avoid 
um, cores because of the performance hit. And I'd be curious to kind of know like uh, what, what you usually do in terms of that. Mm-hmm. So I, admittedly i haven't worked on anything where that's where that extra pre-flight request has been a big issue so mm-hmm. i actually haven't done any of the things the suggestions that are out there to like um to mitigate that i know like one thing and i think you even said this in the the tweet that i saw is you know basically just put your api under the same domain as yeah. your your front end app and then you don't have to worry about it yeah that was um, one kind of easy way although it kind of it kind of feels like it makes things a little bit messier uh it can and and one of the reasons i don't like putting it on the same domain the api and and the single page app is because very often i will want to make a change at the api level without having to like redeploy the front end right sure so if i just redeploy to the api it's a lot easier than having to do both um and like code management that way i find i just find it personally i find it cleaner to be two separate applications but there are people who like to be in the same same yeah, yeah, um, yeah. project same same domain and everything um but in terms of like uh, forgetting about that that options request um yeah same domain that's one way but there there are other there are some other ways and i think there were some um suggestions in that tweet that i saw from you of, of ways that you can mitigate against that and what comes to mind is something at like the network level even or like the the um the server level was there something in there about like nginx like if you set, yeah. set up something with yeah NGINX, you, could you could do can... like an nginx basically a you could you can pick like a a, a, a sub path basically on your client side app and like what it sounds like a lot of people will do is they'll take like slash api that sort of prefix and at the server level they'll proxy that to api.myapp.com right um, so that way um from the browser's perspective, it looks like you're making a same origin uh, request, so it doesn't need to do any of the core stuff. But on the back end, it's actually getting proxied uh, somewhere else, which I'm assuming there's probably a little bit of a performance penalty there, too, you know, because you're hitting one server, then hitting another. Um, right. But it sounds like it's super, super common, so it can't be, be that big of a deal. I know even services like Netlify, for example, um, basically have support for this sort of thing baked into the mm. host at the hosting layer, right? You basically just specify um, this prefix should redirect to this other domain. They kind of give you like a nice layer on top of what would normally be setting up like proxy pass rules and an nginx or something. Right. Um, so that kind of sounds like the most common solution to that problem anyways and it's kind of neat too because you can use that to avoid cores problems even on like other apis that you don't even own if you don't want to uh, because true. once it's just server to server communication there's no browser in the middle to sort of enforce the the core stuff it's just basically mm-hmm. a core request now so yeah, yeah i yeah, thought exactly. that was kind of neat and it's you know it's a it's an interesting argument because cores I mean, there there are a lot of detractors, of course, and and maybe rightly so, because it helps. Sure, it's going to help you in some ways, but it's not like it's foolproof in the slightest, right? Like you could just go into the terminal and make a curl request, and then you yeah. I think probably that. the biggest. I mean, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but what to me, what sounds like the most um, logical benefit from it is it it's one of those layers that helps with the cross-site scripting stuff a little bit right so, hmm. so someone can't just make um 
requests to your domain and pass right. along your cookie for free and yep. delete one of your friends on Facebook or something from Joe Blow's Garage dot com you know what i mean um absolutely because facebook is not going to have a cross-origin resource sharing policy in place to allow that sort of thing so on uh on kind of that note and talking a little bit about headers i'd, I'd make a recommendation to your listeners um if you go to securityheaders.com you can scan your app or your api and see how you um how you do in terms of like the the headers that exist that are specific to security matters, whether you've got them coming back. Um, and if you don't, I'd recommend putting them in. It's actually really simple to do. Um, just set something up at kind of the top level of your server that always sends back the recommended security headers and you will be providing a much um, more secure experience for very little work. Cool, man. Uh, well, maybe that's a good place to start start wrapping things up. Do you have any sure. sort of uh, closing thoughts or, or anything that you uh, wanted to recommend people check out or anything? Um, closing thoughts would be basically security when it comes to like authentication and security and, and those matters don't become complacent. Um, it's like an ever-changing world uh, in that regard. You, you don't want to just get lax. Um, it, the best way to, to stay um, secure is just always be reevaluating your setup, always be evaluating kind of new things that come along that, that help and just don't become complacent, I guess. If you're looking for um, information that is specific about single page apps and APIs and how to do auth, I do have a book that is um, particular to Angular, but you'd, if you're doing Vue or React, you'll still be able to kind of apply the same concepts. Um, that's at ngauthbook.com, or you can just uh, type in Ryan Shanky, securing Angular applications in Google, and you'd find your way there. Cool, man. Uh, what's the best place for people to sort of keep up with you and some of the stuff that you're doing? Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Chanky, um, and GitHub is, I believe it's slash Chanky. And those are the two places that I'm at mostly. Awesome. Are you still doing uh, the AngularCast stuff too? Yep. I've got videos up at angularcast.io if you like Angular. Um, and I'll be, uh, I, I'm, I've got some courses, some course ideas anyway, that are kind of rolling in my head right now that uh, should be materializing later this year or early next. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Ryan Chenke on securing single-page applications. If you enjoyed the show and want to check out the show notes, head over to fullstackradio.com slash 98. Thanks to Rollbar and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week. And if you want to head over to iTunes or your podcast website of choice and drop us an awesome review, that's always appreciated. Thanks and see you next time.